Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Anthony Malakian. I'm the U.S. Editor of Waters and I'm here, of course, with our news editor, James Rundle. Hi, everyone. So uh, in just a little bit, we're going to bring on uh, Brian Harkins, came down to our offices here at 55 Broad in Manhattan. Um, Brian, Don't tell them where we work. Oh, Come my on. God, now yes. I know. Uh, Brian is the head of U.S. markets and global head of FX at BATS, and he's going to discuss... Um, how the CBOE, uh, how the integration with the CBOE is going, um, and some of the broader trends that he's seen in the market and in FX. Um, and he'll also touch on, he's uh, heading up a, uh, the Wall Street Rides Far Bike Ride, which is uh, going, which uh, raises money for, aut- for autism, I think, awareness and, and research. Uh, research yeah. yeah. Um, so he'll be on to discuss all that. And uh, then we will come back, James and I will come back and. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, SEC, uh, the SEC's Edgar system being hacked, and also about uh, how ESMA and uh, some of the other, uh, the three, or the three big European regulators, or whatever, or three yeah, of the big European. Christmas regulators. came early. Yeah. This week, yeah. Um, how they might be uh, getting uh, sweeping new powers uh, after a commission review. I don't know. James wrote the story, so we'll let him talk about it. James and Agulis. Uh <laughs> But yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about that when we get back. But uh, first up, we have Brian, so we'll kick it over to him. Okay, and now we are back, and joining uh, Jim and I, we have Brian Harkins. He is head of U.S. equities and global FX at the CBOE. Uh, Brian, thanks so much uh, for joining us here today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we figured well, we kind of have a quick little discussion um, about, you know, a little bit about how the integration going with um, after the acquisition with uh, BATS and CBOE um, and just kind of some of the broader trends you're seeing. Then we'll talk a little bit about um, the bike ride uh, for autism research that you have coming up. Um, but maybe just start off with, you know, we're about six months out uh, uh, post-acquisition uh, uh, by the CBOE. How's everything going right now? Any uh, interesting tales? Yeah, no, I think it's uh, <clears throat> look, it, it, it's uh, it's going wonderfully. Um, I kind of break it into two categories. The first is on the technology uh, migration. I mean, that was you know the the ration, much of the rationale for uh, for the deal. Um, I mean, I think we're executing on all cylinders there. Uh, we have a um, you know we've been doing a series of customer calls, um, and we're looking forward to the first. Um, you know, executable in that plan, which is the uh, migration of the CFE, our futures exchange, mm-hmm. uh, onto BATS technology early next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have a, a multi-year plan to start to move the legacy CBOE systems onto BATS technology. Sure. The other um, the other thing that I think is, uh, you know, really more in my world I'm most excited about is um, some of the product uh, synergies and how we've worked together to provide uh, better products for our customers. A couple of you know stories to share that I think uh, illustrate the early success of the of the combined organization is um, on the relationship front. Uh, so that's we've been in the uh, ETP listings business for for a few years now. It's sort of an obsession of ours. Um, we look at uh, ETFs and ETPs as really the the uh, the investment vehicle for generations to come. Um, and one of the relationships we had was with the uh, the Winklevoss twins uh, with their Bitcoin right, mm-hmm. yeah. um, ETF that they were trying to get approved. Now, not approved yet by the SEC uh, for the ETF uh, of uh, Bitcoin, but that relationship led to uh, us 
creating a futures contract uh, that's based on the settlement values for um, uh, Bitcoin, the, the Gemini exchange run by the, the Winklevoss. So again, that was a relationship that Legacy Bats had that we brought uh, into the CBOE organization, created a futures product. Uh, so far, uh, I mean, it's getting amazing uh, attention and a lot of market makers really want to price the product. Uh, so we'll see, but uh, we're very, very hopeful. And you're appealing the decision for the ETF as well, right? I think that's the last I heard. Excuse me? You saw you're appealing the decision for the ETF. Right, that's, us, yeah. So, so yeah. We're, we, we, again, we're optimistic about that. Um, but obviously the SEC, uh, Bitcoin is a new, uh, it's a hotly debated topic, as we all know. Um, but yeah, we're hopeful that um, it, it'll land in our favor there. Nice. And you must be experienced with this, I guess, you know, going through... From direct edge being acquired by Bats and now Bats being acquired by CBO. That's a couple of big acquisitions for you personally. The last yeah, I mean, look, this, uh, I guess you can say I'm a, yeah, a, a merger or acquisition veteran. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's part of the uh, it's part of the business, um, not only part of the trading business, but it's part of the exchange business. It's a scale business. Um, you know, on the Bats side, we would, you know, we were a price and cost, uh, a price leader. But we did a lot of volume, so it's a great business if you're big. Um, and you know what I love about um, the exchange business is that you can trade really any asset class on the, the, the on a common set of technology. I mean, you just you're tweaking the software, and that's what uh, we're doing to um, you know to build out the, the legacy CBOE exchanges and move them over to Bats. Um, but I always like to joke, look, if, if baseball cards were a liquid uh, instrument, we would somehow trade them on our matching <laughs> engine. So, Sure. And um, in terms of, uh, you mentioned the, the ETP side of things. Um, from your FX kind of beats, you've had a couple of things happen this year as well. Uh, in May, I think you had the first anonymous FX to liberal forward trading. Um, can you talk a little bit about that in the uptake? And yeah. How that's gone? So, um, so far, it, you know, it's been a, a little bit of a challenge to get that going. I mean, yes, we are live, um, but I would say it's still step one in our diversification. So what, what we uh, in our FX business want to do is deliver a full suite and package of products uh, across the FX spectrum. So we're obviously a very large participant in the spot market. Um, the forwards was our first, um, you know, diversification plan beyond spot. Mm. Uh, we are set to launch non-deliverable forwards uh, in the coming uh, months. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, we, are, we have our eyes on swaps as well. So I think if you, you know, the way um, the FX traders uh, typically approach these products is that uh, sometimes they trade them as, as a package. So you're trading the the forward plus the spot is equal uh, equals the swap. So um, you know, look, we're trying to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace beyond just a spot venue. Um, with respect to forwards, anytime you're a trendsetter and you're trying to do something new and sort of change the market, uh, you're a first mover. Uh, it takes time to kind of shift that mindset, sure. uh, and um, you know, we're hopeful that we'll be able to do it. Um, but uh, one step at a time, and I guess it helps having the, you know, the CBOE backbone with derivatives as well, and sort of you know getting into that sector of the market rather than yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the other thing is, whether it's our FX business, our ETP business, um, you know, we're huge. We're the number one exchange in Europe. We got this large U.S. equities footprint, so we pretty much you know have all the asset classes. Now we don't have fixed income mm -hmm. um, at CBOE, but. One thing that CBOE has uh, has really excelled at is is product creation. Um, now, even though they've, you know, really been a derivative-centric organization, um, you know, we've built we we have this uh, index business and a product creation business where you know the underlying assets 
are often outside of derivatives, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so ha running a large uh, FX market, running a large U.S. equities market, uh, having an ETP market, running a large European market, we have a lot of these large markets that we can package the data and, and bundle these products to create um, new tradable products and, uh, and indexes. And then, you know, you, you're talking about a lot of this kind of future moving stuff and how you're going to be expanding. Do you think that the plan right now is, is it more to stay pure markets business or is there expanding into other areas like listings? Well, I would say, um, you know, we start from our, uh, you know, I would say a, a, the, the legacy bat's strength was uh, being a market operator. Um, I think CB, legacy CBOE is, is a combination, a strong market operator, but also uh, a great innovation company with, you know, like I just said, around product creation, creating things like the VIX and SPX and other uh, tradable products. Um, so when I think about, you know, what our core strengths are, it's about, you know, those creating those products, trading those products and helping people launch new products. Um, and I think it's all very cyclical. Um, you know, with let me talk about the ETP listings business for for a second. Um, I think we have the full offering now, um, and the you know basically from from start to finish in the in the process of what does it take to create an ETP. So if you have somebody has an idea, I'd like to create this new ETP. Well, we can help you, you know, create the building blocks, whether it's the index that that ETP is going to track. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe some sort of. Uh, uh, interesting IP or idea that you have, we can help you launch it, meaning you'll start to work with our legal team to get that product and that idea approved. Uh, once it's launched, it, we will help you list, you know, it'll list on the bat, on one of the BATS exchanges. Uh, and then on the back end, we'll actually help you attract assets by educating the market about that. So one of the things that's wonderful about CBOE is, um, is our investor education. So while that foundation was built on options education and the Options Institute, and we actually we run uh, risk management conferences, but the playbook can be adapted to the ETP market, whereby you know one of the things that uh, I think issuers find most attractive about um, about the new co about this combination is um, we're going to help them reach new investors by educating them around the products that are listed um, on bats. Okay. Interesting. And uh, I guess for a final um, question before we get into the, the charity side of things, um, we're a tech podcast. Um, you guys, BATS, your acronym is Better Alternative Trading Systems, very big tech pedigree. Uh, in terms of your markets um, and in terms of technology, you know, where do you see the big stories over the next few years? What are the big things coming down the pipe for you as a market operator in terms of technology and, and what should we keep an eye on? Yeah, I would say uh, there's, there's, there's a few categories there. One is, you know, in, the, in really the, the data front, big data. Um, I mean, we as an exchange operator, we're obsessed with uh, data and, tr and analytics and trying to provide our members and our customers with um, ways that, look, at the end of the day, they're looking to source liquidity and to tr provide better prices for their clients. That's why they come to the exchange. Um, and we, uh, as with the large footprint we are, how we slice and dice and present that data to our clients um, is um, something I think differentiates us. Mm -hmm. I think second, secondly, on the on the data front, um, with respect to say the FX market, um, we operate a very customized market. So our FX market hotspot uh, is you know it's a very bespoke market where 
uh, a liquidity provider is not quoting prices to the entire market. They only are quoting prices to uh, a significant uh, a subset of clients. And so we use data and um, analytics, and we've hired quants to help our clients lead our clients to a conclusion about who they should be showing their prices to mm. because you know that can't be just a uh, an arbitrary you know ad hoc okay we think you should price the following clients no the answer lies in statistics so we look at historical patterns and say okay this market maker would be uh, it would be great for this market maker to, to pair off with the following people and so when you're sitting on a lot of on a lot of data we have people that are uh, analysts and, and quants on staff that are parsing through data um, to to better help our, our clients um, I would say another category in the technology front is just you know how technology adapts to any potential regulatory change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the in equities in particular, you know, it's you know we had the, a flurry of changes around Reg MS when that was launched. Um, the market had you know really adopted to that, and it really settled in. You know, there really hasn't been a ton of innovation in equities in the last few years uh, for a variety of reasons. It's just you know uh, maybe partly the regulatory climate. Um, people are waiting for potential market structure changes and you know with a new administration there's been a I've never seen you know there's the equities markets are always going to be debated about what's best for the market and market structure is always a hot topic but uh, I see with a new administration there are certain issues and key topics that I think are, are really have come a long way on making progress and I think we're about to see some things. Um, In terms of what sort of order types and various other bugbears? You know, people talking about, uh, you know, the the access fee pilot that uh, the new chair, Clayton, talked about. Um, The access fee pilot, you know, could evolve into something else where, you know, it has an an impact on fragmentation. Um, So what I'm saying is that change... uh, you know, if change is coming, technology is really going to be one of the drivers on adaptability to that change. Mm-hmm. You know, you keep reading, we keep reading a lot about um, consolidation in the proprietary trading and high frequency space. Why is that? It's because the cost of technology um, is really, really challenging when, you know, I think the industry, um, everybody's feeling some sort of pain right now in equities because there's no volatility and the volume is not growing. Um, so those fixed costs become a glaring issue uh, when in, in a stagnant market. So, you know, I think a lot of people are focused on trying to pool their technology costs. Uh, never before have I seen, uh, you know, competitors, you know, market maker competitors, proprietary trading competitors that are saying, you know what, let's not compete on the cost of what it is, you know, to have a, a microwave tower or to have some sort of cross-ocean link. Let's just pool our money and and yep. let's compete on trading IP and trading strategies, not on who's got the the best widget and technology. Which ultimately means a healthier market, right? At the end of the day, if you're not sort of yeah sinking all those resources into shaving off milliseconds, you're actually doing it for market benefit. That's great. So, yeah, I agree. Okay. Well, you know, since we have you on the show, um, we definitely want to hear about uh, the Wall Street Rides Far event, uh, which is um, to uh, raise money for autism awareness. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the event and how it uh, came about? Yeah, no, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to tell you a little more about it. Um, so this is year three. This is the third annual event upcoming uh, in October. Um, and really the vision behind behind this was, you know, my wife and I 
Um, you know, we've seen the impact that autism has on families. You know, we have some uh, family members, extended family members that um, have children that are on the spectrum. And boy, what a challenge it is. And, uh, you know, we as parents ourselves, and, you know, if you have healthy children, you're really blessed. And But, it, you know, it's really the luck of the draw because um, it, it's, it's such a genetic question mark. Um, so instead of sitting on our hands, we say, how could we really be impactful here? And, you know, as I thought about, uh, you know, the field that I'm in and, um, you know, really I'm lucky enough to work in an industry where I have a lot of great friends and um, literally know thousands of people very, very well. Um, so, you know, let's, I think it's, it was our idea to channel that, um, you know, towards a cause. And, so then we, so we knew we wanted to talk, we wanted to, to help autism and the Autism Science Foundation specifically because they're focused on research and, you know, it's our view that um, hope lies in science. If we keep throwing money at the best scientists, uh, the highest caliber scientists that are out there, uh, and I've seen some of the research that they've done and um, it's some amazing stuff that I think we, we can make some progress. So, sure. you know, so you have the Autism Science Foundation, we have our network of people, and then it was a matter of okay, well, what's the what? What can we do? How do we attract people to this, uh, you know, to this cause? And uh, my wife and I, we really we're really into fitness. We like to to bike, and so you know, we thought okay, there's a lot of walks and there's five Ks and there's golf outings and some people do galas. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. That those are all wonderful ways to to raise awareness, but nobody's done a bike event. Mm-hmm. And so we had the unique factor and sort of the creativity down. Uh, and then we found a production company that was going to, to, to stage the event. So really the three-legged stool is my wife and I, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to bring the generosity and the people and to, to bring the network of, uh, uh, the, bring the network of folks that we know to, to the event. Then we have the production company who's staging the event and providing a great experience and, and, and fun for everyone, and then of course there's the Autism Science Foundation, which is the beneficiary. So so far it's go, it's going it's going wonderfully. And what is the event? Where is it going to be held? Where are some of the details there? So the event is August seventh, uh, upcoming. Uh, it's held uh, pretty much the same time every year. It's the first weekend in in um, October. It's in White Plains, uh, Saxo Woods Park, um, so le- under an hour from uh, New York City, and. Uh, you know, we have, it's not just a bike event, it's a, uh, we call it like a sense of community. Um, we have a, a lunch there. We even, first time this year, we're serving beer, so hopefully that attracts some people. I wasn't going to go, but now I'm... Yeah, I'm so, um, you know, so it's, um, you know, we have a great, and, and what I call it is, it, I call it a no excuses ride, meaning a lot of people, some people are, are intimidated by, you know, I don't ride, I, I'm not a cyclist. And I don't use the word cyclist. This is a bike ride. Uh, everybody knows how to ride a bike. Um, so if you're a cycling nut, you can ride uh, 62 miles. Uh, but if you want to come out for um, a family-friendly day and you want to bring your kids, there's a couple of shorter routes, four and eight miles, where people ride with their children. And then there's everything in between. So we really have designed the, the, um, the event so that it caters to people of all abilities. It's about having fun. It's about the cause. And it's not about uh, torturing yourself. So how do people get involved if they want to either, I guess, participate or if they want to sponsor or donate? Yeah, absolutely. The best place to go is uh, www.wallstreetridesfar.org. You can register. You can donate there. Um, You can always uh, get in contact with me 
through uh, that website. Um, and, you know, look, tell more people. Uh, we, you can follow us on social media, on LinkedIn. Um, it's all on the website. And, uh, yeah, we're uh, trying to raise awareness. So yeah, when can it. people sign up until? To write, uh, is there a cutoff when they can register? No, you can register right up until the uh, the day of the event. And mm -hmm. in fact, um, I always stress about it going into the event because uh, we get a hundred riders that come in on the the last few days. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> uh, it's the inevitable procrastination, and I'm no different. Uh, so sign up early and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Great stuff. We'll have a link to the website um, at the bottom of this post. Absolutely. Well, Brian, uh, thanks so much uh, for your time, and uh, good luck on the integration, and more importantly, good luck on uh, the event. Thank you, guys. Appreciate having me. Thanks, Brian. All right, and we are back. Thank you again to Brian uh, for coming down to our offices here and uh, chatting with us, and we will link to the Wall Street Rides Far bike ride uh, site so you can get more information about that if you are interested. Uh, this week, a couple big... Uh, news stories. It's been a busy week, actually, yeah. yeah, on the news fronts. What do you want to hit first, uh, the SEC or ESMA? I think, yeah, yeah, considering last night at the bar we were talking about how bad the Equifax thing was, and then literally on the way home I got an um, yeah. email, which I didn't pay attention to at first, and this really is a masterclass in PR <laughs> nonsense here. Um, so the SEC had a cyber attack. It disclosed it yesterday, but it, <laughs> the email we got from them was just as SEC Chairman Clayton issued a statement on cybersecurity, and I was already falling asleep at this point, and yeah. I didn't want to read it. And it takes... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine lines before it discloses that the SEC was the subject of a cyber attack. And before that, she's saying, yo, we're going <laughs> to highlight the importance of cybersecurity and that kind of thing. And thinking, oh, well, you know, this is nothing. Anyway, um, so our, our colleague Joe Faulkner wrote the initial story on this, um, which I subsequently contributed to, which is... James just tries to sneak his byline into everybody's stories, basically. Oh, week, yeah, actually. it's pretty awesome. <laughs> that. The two stories that we're going to be talking about, James just kind of swooped in just there. Gonna, and, uh, I'm just going <laughs> to take my editor's privilege here. And, uh, so before, actually, James uh, was working for us uh, here in the U.S., uh, he was over in London as a European reporter. And me and uh, Jake Thomas, who used to be one of our reporters here, uh, we had a nickname for him called The Rundler. Uh, because he would always uh, sneak in and steal a story from us that one of us was oh, working on. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, he's, this, these, he's been doing this for a long time. These now. incredibly passive aggressive emails from Jake going, Oh, I've been rundled again. <laughs> yep. Again. Rundle. The <laughs> so the SEC attack, give us so some the information. SEC, yeah, so um, what happened was the SEC has a company filing system called Edgar, which stores all of the sort of 10Ks and the 4s and everything, and all the information the companies, public companies have to submit. And uh, it turns out that uh, last year people got into it, um, and it wasn't until August 2017 that the Commission learned of an incident previously detected in 2016, apparently. Uh, so there's all the possibility that people could have been accessing all this company information uh, and then essentially insider trading off that knowledge in the meantime. The SEC says that it has no... Uh, systemic implication and they've analysed it and it's all everything's fine and we're not Aquifax, please God don't um, don't do anything to us. But um yeah, people aren't happy. I mean Senator our old friend Senator Warner um, said that he's gonna be interrogating the SEC about it and uh, I was at NASDAQ earlier this morning and seeing all the boards, all the major networks on it. It was all sure. Equifax and SEC and the crosshairs. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah. no one's very happy with it. But yeah, I mean, the SEC has been making a big deal about cybersecurity um, and how firms need to be prepared. So this is 
not just egg it's on the face. It's like an egg bath they've now been dunked into and sort of slowly battered in. The first thing that I thought of when uh, I read the story um, was uh, the CFTC's just ridiculous um, uh, source code provision in Reg AT, right. Regulation 18. Um, which said that firms had to store and that they would have to hand over their source code behind their training strategies, all this. Um, we've written a lot about it. We can link to those stories. But it was just, they said, the people that were opposed to it, and uh, Commissioner uh, John Car- Chris Giancarlo, he was staunchly opposed to it. So, you know, it's fairly opposed to regulation, full stop, isn't it? I mean, I you know, it's, uh, it's a good thing we're at CFTC. <laughs> um, he was saying that there, this is just going to create a massive bullseye for people to hack into. You know, you're going to be stealing. You know, this is this is what makes a firm's trading strategy is a source code. You can't be giving this up yeah. to a regular. Regulars aren't good. And uh, the, the the previous commissioner, who was um, there before John Carl, what was his name? Uh, Massad. Yeah. Uh, he said, you know, this is no. We can definitely you know make sure that we can you know protect this. All this yada yada yada. This goes to show that there is no chance that this. Source code should go forward that the regulators just do not have okay. the ability Even to... Even the NSA can't secure its own espionage yeah. tool. The CIA, for God's sake. That's where all this WannaCry stuff came yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, the, well, the SEC and the CFTC can't. Yeah, yeah. exactly. When they can. <laughs> so You can't secure Edgar, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> so this is definitely an embarrassing time for them to have this come out well, right as they're yeah, trying to Just put... as this Equifax thing, which has a SEC dimension as well with all the trading that went on with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just... It, it, boggles the mind that also they didn't pick up the fact that there was illicit trading going on before. I mean, you know, they're pretty good at, say, when someone puts a bunch of call options on a company and then suddenly they have this massive announcement and their share price tanks. And, yeah. Yeah, you're probably insider trading. We're yeah. going to prosecute for that. Some guys on <laughs> windsheets is coming to you right now. Um, how they well, we'll be interested to see if they have a scapegoat because, right, won't they want to kind of come out now with kind of some big announcements and stuff like that, you know, just to kind of yeah. divert attention away? I mean, I think the SEC is kind of in a like a real trap now because it's been castigating Equifax for not revealing this and being the way it has been over this whole thing, which has been nothing short of just appalling in the way yeah. it's behaved. Um, so I think they have to be super transparent about this and have a whole report probably come out in the next three years about what happened and then yeah. uh, we'll go from there. But it's, it's not good. Um, and, you know, if the nation's top market's regulator can't secure its systems, um, something as basic as company filing, which you would have thought would have all kinds of levels of security around it, mm-hmm. then, uh, mind you, I mean, these things are notoriously leaky. I remember um, when I was at Dow Jones, I did a story on uh, the UK's version of Edgar, which is called Company's House, mm-hmm. and how um, somebody had been registering as Jeff Sprecher and putting a load of companies up on there and, like, fake kind of New York Stock Exchange <laughs> shells and that kind of thing, like NASDAQ International. Um, so these things aren't very secure, but... Uh, they should be, really, quite frankly, especially in this day and age. And uh, it's not like this is new. Cybersecurity has been around for a long time, so not good. Yeah. I think that uh, many you know, CDOs, Chief Information Officers, Security Compliance Officers, they probably have a little bit of a smile on their face, a There's little that bit kind of, of, of a shot, shot of Freud. Yeah. That's the word yeah. I was looking for, yeah, that amazing German word. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other uh, big announcement uh, to come out was the um, ESMA potentially gaining um, sweeping new powers. Uh, Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is something that Esma's been asking for um, since it was created in 2011 and probably before that when it was Caesar. Um, So Esma, um, under this proposal from the European Commission, which is sort of loosely linked to um, its capital markets union platform, 
maybe a little dash of Brexit thrown in there as well, um, is essentially proposing that the three European supervisory authorities, which are ESMA, the European Banking Authority, and the European European Insurance and Occupational Pensions Authority, mm-hmm. or IOPA to its friends, um, have a bunch of expanded remits, really. Um, so ESMA... The main change comes from its funding model. So before, it was funded by a mix of the European budget and the national competent authorities, so people like the FCA, people like the AMF in France, BaFin in Germany. Um, it was, I think it was 40% European budget and 60% NCA's fund bit. Mm-hmm. Now that's gone. Now it's going to be funded by an industry levy. Um, so and just to kind of give one interesting number from that. So their budget was between 30 and 40 million since it was created in 2011 uh, by contract UK's FCA, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority. Oh, yeah. Uh, in 2016, was over 400 million. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is a story that I've been covering for years now, and it's something that ESMA have been constantly complaining about. And understandably, I mean, you can't run a pan-European regulator on 40 million euros. It's just mm. ridiculous. Um, it's dwarfed by, I mean, I think the SEC's budget was something like $670 million or something this year. Um it even got to the point, actually, where last year they had to issue a statement um, in their report saying they had to cut back on office supplies because things were so tight, <laughs> uh, which I had a great um, story, which is no longer available, unfortunately, but it was something like Esmer empties the pencil cupboard or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but what this means now, though, is that um, their dependence on national regulators has been severed, essentially. So the whole point is that they're now relatively independent. Um and as part of their new powers, they're not only overseeing things like benchmarks and um, aspects of data management, market data as well, but they can also intervene directly in cases of market abuse where they think there's a problem, mm-hmm. or they can direct national regulators to begin an investigation, which is a huge step up in its powers. Esma before directly oversaw credit ratings agencies, um, it oversaw trade repositories and had a element of CCP supervision as well, but really that was the extent of what it could do. It was more of a kind of toothless kind of predator, yeah. really. Um, now the, it has real teeth. So. Well, and I think that two interesting areas here that kind of came up through, especially for our audience, was um, one, prioritizing fintech by promoting innovation in cybersecurity. Yeah. Speaking good of time. weird regulatory <laughs> provisions on the, on the Reg AT line, um, good topic, yeah. So it had this weird little um, addendum after listing all these new powers it had, and everyone's just kind of reading it and going, what? Kind of yeah. like, it says, yeah, you have to consider technological innovation in everything you do from that on, everything yep. you do. And, and there was another piece, and we'll get to the, the, the other piece in a little bit, mm. but it will, it will all be requi- they'll all be required to promote sustainable finance by considering uh, environmental, social, and governance, ESG factors in decision-making. Which is so weird, right? Why would you put that in there? It's not the it, core part of financial stability. <laughs> really weird. It's, called, like, it's noble. I like no, the idea. Like Don't it, get yeah. me wrong. But this is the kind of thing that leads to Brexit, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's the stupid European Commission tendency towards putting this batshit crazy stuff inside regulation there's no point being there there's yeah. no business being there as uh, we spoke to Marcus Ferber um, about this and he was just I mean he kind of laughed about it and just said yeah it's a complete non-starter there's no yeah, the way we're going she's a non-starter yeah. and he also said you know that you know it's a step in the right direction to change the funding sure but it also must not quote it must not mean that the ESAs can do what they want yeah. to just because they get more money. And you have to take it further with a pinch of salt here. I mean, I've spoken to him for several years on this topic, and um, you know, it, it, the Parliament and ESMA have not had the best working relationship over the last few years. Um, I mean, last year, he threatened to um, cut their funding and put new restraints on them if they didn't do what the Parliament wanted on MIFID two and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's frequently moaning about the fact that the ESAs do whatever they want. But at the end of the day, 
you know, ESMA isn't the kind of agency like the FCA is, like an enforcement agency, although now I guess it's turning into one. Um, yeah. ESMA is a technocratic agency. It writes rules and technical standards. It doesn't go out and sort of kick in the door of Goldman Sachs and get a load of guys walking in taking computers. Yeah. Um, it's really just a bunch of nerds who write really complicated rules about really complicated market structure topics. And that's actually a direct quote from somebody at ESMA who's told me before. <laughs> so, <laughs> before anyone thinks about sort of getting in touch, going, what the hell did you call us? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you told me this. <laughs> so, yeah, Ferber has a bit of a vested interest in making it seem like he's standing up to these big bad regulators. Um, maybe some of the vested interests we saw today from a Politico article, which we probably shouldn't mention without any comment from him. At least uh, search engine optimization you know, might might lead people as they're searching for him to maybe kind of come to, to this story. Maybe to go to this story, we'll yeah. see. Um, yeah, so, I mean, look, it's, it has to go through the Parliament and has to go through the Council through this process called Trilogue. Um, How long before is this going to take? Uh, well, it could take anything from three months to three years. Um, but it depends how ornery the parliament's feeling whether it wants anything in particular on various other files they're working on like prips or um even elements of Mifid 2 i guess they tend to hold these things to ransom saying okay well you change this rule and we'll give you your new funding mm -hmm. um there's also going to be a heck of a lot of industry opposition i think um one of the guys i spoke to for the story just said you know we've been kicking around this idea of industry funding for the agencies for a long time um they weren't happy about it Obviously, because they already fund the national competent authorities, the FCA and stuff, and they're going to sure. have another one to fund. Um, but the guy I spoke to said, look, I mean, in principle, it's not that huge, but um, if ESMA thinks that now they've got industry funding, there's going to be a rapidly expanded budget um, for whatever they want, then they've mm -hmm. got another thing coming. And the FIA and ESMA and all the other associations have proved particularly effective at lobbying on this. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Okay. So, good news week. We have we will link to both of those articles and some of the other stuff that we've been uh, talking about before, um, and we're gonna have some features coming out over the next uh, couple of weeks here, starting hopefully next week, uh, but definitely within two weeks. Um, we've got some uh, good stuff coming up. Uh, I'll be writing something on GDPR and speaking of data protection and stuff like that. Um, James, what got haven't I got with this feature? Yeah, 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 it's yeah, yeah, good. We got a Malaykian Rundle. Joint byline masterpiece exactly. on New York. Uh, sadly. As always, you know James Rundle getting into the byline. You I know? didn't actually do any work on this as well. It's brilliant. I helped with the original <laughs> story, and then I haven't even seen the piece. I've seen it's gone through. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, and then I did a feature on uh, a quite a lengthy feature on reform of post trade, um, factoring all kinds of fun things like blockchain and um, data management and all sorts. So that should be a, a good read for the Cybos crowd. Uh, which is coming up in a few weeks, obviously. Which James will be attending, so if you have any pitches or anything, yeah, send it to him. I've got be. some kind of limited availability now, but I'm more than happy to meet and um, do stuff. So, yeah. All right. And, uh, you know, so we were kicking around, you know, as always, you know, got to talk about, you know, just something. Some people, it's the favorite part, just to hear us talk about non-fintech yeah. you know, fintech stuff. Um, I mean, I would hate to listen to me talk about industry stuff if I was actually <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> so. Put the ball to the head. Exactly. Um, yeah. Sci-fi, we decided on. James is, yeah. is a big sci-fi nerd. I figure that a lot of our listeners in technology are also sci-fi nerds. Um, and yes, I do use the term derisively. So, you know, James, what for you, the new show Orville, right, is uh, out Lovely by Orville. Seth MacFarlane. Yep. It hasn't gotten great reviews. No, it hasn't. That's because people have no taste, as I frequently mentioned to Mia when discussing movies with her. And uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, I really liked it. Uh, the second episode wasn't as strong as the first one, but it's Seth MacFarlane who did Family Guy. Um, 
it's got a really good cast in it. Uh, Adrian Palicki, I think her name is. Um, she's really good. She's kind of the main actress in it. It's cool. It's like it's not Family Guy style dick jokes constantly and like a full send up spoof mm-hmm. like Galaxy Quest was. It's actually got like um, some drama and characterization to it, and it's actually quite fun to watch. Um, third episode is tonight, I think Thursday. Yeah. So. And are you excited about the Star Trek uh, reboot? I was really excited about it. I've actually become more excited about the Orville than I am about the new Star Trek, which is out this Sunday, actually, I think. Um, Why would you be more excited about Orville than Star Trek? Well, I mean, I love Star Trek. Don't get me wrong. Um, I literally wrote a book on Star Trek. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, it just seems like it's kind of MTV-style Star Trek in this one, maybe. We'll Mm -hmm. see how it goes. But um, I'm trying to keep an open mind. I'm... Not thrilled about the fact I have to pay for CBS All Access to watch it, but there's this thing called network television that you could always watch. No, right? they're only putting it on the streaming service. You have to pay. Money you for have it. to watch it on the streaming. You have to service. watch it on the stream. They're showing the first episode on the network, I think, and then the rest of it's going to be shown on. Give the you a little service. bit of a taste of the crack, and then you know. That's what happens. That's just, the, just the way they do it now. It's what we were talking about last week with NBC Gold and things like that. It's, that uh, is that is harsh, man. It's a bold strategy. I'm not sure what it's going to pay off. I would suggest it might be better to partner with Netflix, maybe, since Star Trek's pretty popular now with the films and everything, and, like, you know... Yeah, well, how would anybody have the CBS streaming, like... Because also, yeah. is it, I would imagine Star Trek is gearing toward a younger crowd. CBS's television shows, by and large, are geared toward 60-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, I think this is for a more kind of mature, mid-20s, Towards adult millennial kind of audience, yeah. it looks like not it the NCIS crowd though. No, that, you know, no, no, no. And the other shows that dominate, you know, like yeah, Miami, no. whatever, CSI. It's just a weird little strategy, and I think CBS thinks it's being a trailblazer in how it's going to distribute television. And I'm sure people at ABC go and look at this and go, "Oh yeah, maybe we should move Agents of Shield and uh, Once Upon a Time stuff to our own streaming service." And Fox, I think. It's funny. I don't really watch anything on network television anymore. I'm um, trying to think of like if there's any one show that I definitely tune in for. I'm sure there is, but I just can't think of it. Yeah, my right guilty now. pleasure is Blue Bloods. That's pretty much Blue Bloods. Yeah, Tom yeah. Selleck and um, that guy from New Kids on the Block. Donnie. Donnie. Donnie Wahlberg. Donnie Wahlberg. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, any other big sci-fi things that uh, the people should be aware of? That uh, new Star Wars coming soon as well. Obviously, that was new Star Wars. New Star this Wars. This is episode eight. This is episode eight. Yeah. Um, so they're doing this two-year cycle, I guess, where they're going to have like Han Solo next shows, year, yeah. and then they have one after that. Um, other than that, I think it's in theaters at the moment, so people should go and see that. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. I remember yeah. reading as a kid and being uh, it was just horrified. a horrible book. <laughs> a horrible, nasty little book full yeah. of. Uh, Child abuse and really graphic orgy scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen King. Stephen King. Legend. Yeah, this is it. Um, apparently, the guy who did it now wants to do Pet Cemetery as well, so that'd be quite fun. Okay. So, right. It's always blowing my mind that Stephen King did like Shawshank Redemption too, and like you know, some other weird yeah. kind of stuff in there. Well, a lot of sci-fi guys do that. Like Ian Banks, um, who wrote uh, thoroughly well. He's dead now, unfortunately, but uh, thoroughly well-regarded uh, sci-fi series called The Culture. Also wrote things like The Wasp Factory and various other things under a different. Well, I think it's under Ian Banks and sci-fi stuff's under Ian M. Banks. And that okay. Kind of. But yeah, lots of sci-fi, like Margaret Atwood, for instance, you know, crosses the Rubicon between what's considered sort of you know, literary kind of fiction and science fiction. And that yeah. Kind of so, yeah. Well, Stephen King, though, is just a, like, yeah, just a, kind of, I met him once actually a few years ago. Um, his son's an author as well, called Joe Hill. Okay. Um, so I had lunch with him and Stephen King in Covent Garden. It was like a That's surreal cool. experience. Yeah. <laughs> it was very cool. He's a very... Intense guy, Stephen King. Just got into kind of like the inspirations behind his books and how kind of 
things like The Shining were about kind of violent thoughts he had towards his kid when it was screaming at three in the morning. <laughs> kid obviously now an adult sitting at the table going, thanks, Dad. Has he written anything? Because like, he's had so many legendary books. Has he yeah. written anything of note over the last like ten years? Because I, I know he's still very prolific, I yeah, think. Yeah, right? he had a couple but... of books. I mean, he had Under the Dome, I think, which got turned into a TV series. Um, yeah. And he had another one, which was just a date, which I can't remember. But none of them had the impact of, like, Carrie or the Firestarter. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, you know, The Shining and It and Salem's Loth and things like that. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, so that has been your sci-fi roundup yep. from James Rundle. Um, if you have any good uh, pitches for him, obviously, send them his way. Exactly. I don't care about sci-fi, so. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all for uh, listening in. Again, uh, thanks, Brian, uh, for joining the podcast. Um, we will be back here next week. Uh, we have uh, another uh, special guest. Um, and yeah, so that's about all I got for this week. You, I'm all good. All right, thank you. Have a good week, everyone. Cheers.